Today I'm speaking with Cass Sunstein. Cass is the Robert Walmsley University professor at Harvard Law School, where he's the founder and director of the Program on Behavioral Economics and Public Policy. He is by far the most cited law professor in the United States. Amazing. From 2009 to 2012, he served in the Obama administration as administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. He has testified before congressional committees, been involved in constitution-making and law reform activities in a number of countries, and written many articles and books, including Nudge with Richard Thaler. And Thaler actually won the Nobel Prize in economics since we recorded this podcast. And he's written other books on his own, two of which are under discussion today. The first is Hashtag Republic, Divided Democracy in the Age of Social Media, and the forthcoming Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide. And Cass and I talk about the polarization and fragmentation of American society. We talk about choice architecture, the importance of face-to-face interactions for problem-solving, group polarization and identity politics, virtuous forms of extremism, the much-vaunted wisdom of crowds, the possibility of ever having a direct democracy, rational limits on free speech, the process of presidential impeachment, and other topics. As I say at the end, I found this conversation truly educational. There was a lot I didn't understand about impeachment in particular until today, and I hope you find listening to Cass as valuable as I did. And I now bring you Cass Sunstein. I am here with Cass Sunstein. Cass, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Before we jump into your book, there are actually two books I want to discuss. I'll start with Hashtag Republic, but perhaps you can just summarize your background. You have a very diverse background. You've touched a lot of topics. You've served in government. How do you view your decades of work at this point? Uh, Work in progress. So um, I started as a law professor at the University of Chicago after a short stint at the Justice Department. And I guess before that, I had clerked for a couple of judges, including Thurgood Marshall. I was at Chicago for many years. I did some work connected with governments, including our own, but I didn't leave the academy until uh, Barack Obama became president. And then I worked in the White House, uh, helping to oversee government regulation for about four years. Uh, After that, I left um, to be an academic again at at Harvard. Uh, The president asked me to uh, be on his group on surveillance and national security. I did that for approximately a year. That was a part-time job as I was teaching. And after that, uh, the Defense Department asked me to be on the Defense Innovation Board, which I was on up until quite recently. Uh, which works on the subject of uh, national defense and innovation. Um, Since I left government as a full-time job, that was in late 2012, I've worked with our government and various other governments on strategies that can promote health and increase safety and uh, maybe help uh, employment go up and poverty go down, environmental protection and issues of that kind. And you and I have never met, but we have an editor in common. We've got Thomas Labine linking us. 
He's edited two of my books. I think he's edited maybe more of yours. Uh, he is fantastic. Yeah, so, he, he really uh, is. Uh, Thomas is an amazing person and a kind person and also a, a brilliant editor with real creativity about how to make things go, at least in my experience, in better directions. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's great to meet you virtually here. I want to focus on Republic first and mostly because it's so timely. I mean, you're, the other book I want to touch at the end, Impeachment, is also super timely. but. When did you actually write Republic? It came out earlier this year, but when were you actually writing it? Um, I was working on it for approximately, I'd say, 18 months um, before the election. So I actually finished it right about the time of uh, President Trump's victory. Um, But I'd been thinking hard about it uh, for probably two years before then. It actually builds on earlier work on the question of polarization. But uh, my own experience in Washington and my own observation, I guess, uh, since leaving Washington, uh, kind of fixed me on the issue of uh, polarization and uh, mutual misunderstanding. And that was uh, kind of 2014-2015 obsession. So you you analyze the forces that are are leading to increased fragmentation and and polarization in our our society. And and it's fragmentation and polarization of all kinds. It's political, which I'm sure we'll focus on, but it's also moral and intellectual and religious. I mean, every way in which belief systems can be segregated, there's a similar dynamics to what's happening there. The, The most natural place to start here is with a few of the concepts you introduce very early in the book. And the first is the concept of choice architecture. And this can be summarized with Nicholas Negroponte's rather dystopian idea of the, the, what's called the daily me. And, and many of our listeners will not have heard of either of these phrases while actually living with their implications every day. So perhaps you can explain choice architecture and its consequences. Dick Thaler, an economist, and I worked on a book called Nudge a few years ago. And one of the driving ideas is if you're in a grocery store or in a cafeteria or on a website, there's actually an architecture for choosing. So a grocery store might have um, Pepsi uh, there, or it might instead have Diet Pepsi there, or it might have uh, carrots, or it might have chocolate bars. And what's at the checkout counter actually matters in terms of what people purchase. And what's uh, proximate and visible, what's eye level actually matters in terms of what people end up stocking in their refrigerator. So too in a cafeteria, it can be have a choice architecture that favors uh, meat or fish or vegetables or brownies. And uh, if the designer is, is smart, they will create an architecture that's uh, good for you or good for them or hopefully good for both you and them. A website designer who is alert to the importance of particular choices will know that if you put things in big font and colorful letters and you make it really simple, you can attract the eye. And the thing that's first on on a list is likely to be what people will purchase. And that is uh, a clue for someone who's trying to sell clothes or, or, or books. Um, and so choice architecture is really everywhere. 
Um, a rental car company is engaged in choice architecture. Um, the U.S. government is engaged in choice architecture. So is the state where you live, and so are some of the great forces in society, and so are some of the less great forces in society. Sometimes we're choice architects when we don't really even think about it. So a teacher of um, kids is doing choice architecture all the time. So is a doctor who is saying, you know, we have five options for you. Here's the first. And saying that will often uh, bias the decision. Parents are definitely choice architects. I have two small kids, and one's five, the other is eight, and they are extremely effective choice architects with respect to their father. They know how to design mm-hmm. situations right. so as to get me to do it. It's running in the wrong direction. Completely. And I'll, I'll run after them, and then we're going in the direction they want. So for uh, media, um, both a, uh, a social media platform like Facebook and a newspaper like, let's say, the Wall Street Journal and a network is a choice architect. Uh, Facebook, let's take as an example, can have a news feed that has one kind of uh, default choices. So it can say, you know, we know from your choices and from our algorithm, this is the kind of thing that you you look at. Or we know that uh, this is the kind of thing that most people look at. And it can feed you stuff that uh, fits with your own political convictions. Or it can feed you stuff that fits kind of with, with, with what the median person in your state likes, or it can feed you stuff that is uh, serendipitous and diverse. And that's also true of the local newspaper, which can say, I'll provide you, you know, an assortment of things that it's probably good for someone in your area to know about, or which can think, you know, most of our readers, they uh, are right of center, they are left of center, or we are right of center and left of center, and we're going to provide that perspective. So that's choice architecture, too. Uh, so choice architecture is everywhere. The term kind of uh, suggests, I hope uh, helpfully, that uh, the architecture that we often just take as kind of a background fact or furniture of life often will have big effects on what we end up selecting. Now, the idea of daily me, which comes from the uh, far-sighted Nicholas Negroponte, actually comes from a pretty long time ago, the 1990s. And he said, you know, we're not going to have TV stations and uh, general interest newspapers so much in the future. We're going to have a system where every person can design his or her daily me. So if your name is Bob, you can create the daily Bob. And suppose what you're most interested in is uh, Star Wars uh, that can highlight Star Wars on your screen. And suppose what you really think is the problem of uh, unlawful immigration is spiraling out of control. Those are that's your political focus. Your daily me can tell you both about the immigration problem and it can talk about it in a way that you find congenial rather than silly or um, unhelpful. And so the daily Bob can look one way, the daily Mary can look a completely different way. And in a way, Silicon Valley has, for a long time, seen this power of personalized choice architecture, let's call it, as the ideal. That's heaven. That's democracy. That's freedom. So that each of us gets a news diet that isn't what anyone else thinks we need, but is specifically based on our own values and tastes. And obviously, the incentives for these companies run in the direction of more perfectly fulfilling this formula. And, and so 
what we have essentially is an arms race for people's attention and the daily me version of things one would expect would be stickier you know if you can deliver me information which i find captivating and the algorithm keeps prioritizing that and if it could, i can be captivated by outrage i can be captivated by desire you know the ads get better and better at, at actually delivering me things that i i will be tempted to buy you know the incentives seem aligned to fulfill negroponte's idea it's a very um what is it a promising or a seductive business route model either for uh, a startup or for an established company uh, a few years ago i was traveling a lot and i found myself getting on my facebook page a lot of luggage ads and uh, how'd they know i was in the market for luggage they they figured it out they were they were right and i was much more likely to click on luggage ads than I would be to click on ads for, let's say, sneakers. And they knew that. And that is in their economic interest. So if you're a political candidate, let's say, who wants to win a particular state, if you know these people will like me better if I suggest that I'm with them on this issue, or those people are likely to give me money if they see my face over the following five words, then you can get very, very precise. And as you say, that's the incentive of someone who wants to win an election. So both for companies and for uh, political aspirants, and it looks like the Russian government, by the way, knew about this in their role in the U.S. 2016 election, uh, there is a business model that suggests that building on the idea of the Daily Me is is a good one. Now, there's some reasons to think that people are a little more complicated than that, and there may be other business models that are uh, as good or better, but certainly we can call it the business model of the aughts, meaning the first decade of the uh, 21st century. Uh, the daily me model has been all the rage. So in opposition to this, you discuss the value of what you call serendipity. You've already used the word and also irritation and shared experience. Describe what you mean by those three things. Okay, so there are three very different ideas. Uh, the idea of serendipity means that in a, in a great city, large or small, uh, it may be that when you go around the corner, you'll see a Lebanese restaurant or a sports event that you didn't know you had any interest in. Maybe the sports event is soccer, and you thought you were bored by soccer, but whoa, those kids are pretty good. Or the Lebanese restaurant you never tried, but um, uh, looks interesting. And uh, you might see, some of the times, uh, a political protest about something. You know, it might be Black Lives Matter, or it might be abortion is murder. And you might learn from that both what your fellow citizens think, and you might also think to yourself for a moment, maybe more than a moment, gosh, I didn't know that that was on the view screen of my neighbors, and maybe they have a point. And that can, can change your mind, it can change your life, and can certainly broaden your horizon. So the idea of serendipity is that a good choice architecture, let's call it, for communications has a lot of surprises in it. And 
you know, the, some of these words aren't the most familiar choice architecture probably is, uh, you know, has too many, too many vowels or something. The word architecture is a lot of them, but it's pretty familiar that if you go on a, uh, a, a news station or a talk show that interests you, uh, you'll see stuff that you never would have specifically, um, said you want to hear about that, but it could be stuff that will be the most important thing you see that week or hear that week. So you might hear something about uh, a problem or an initiative in India. And while you thought you had no interest in India, the, the problem is something that alarms you or the initiative is something that you think, gosh, uh, the whole world can learn from that, maybe benefit from that. And that can be, you know, super important for people. And I think in individual lives, if you think about what your job is or what you're reading or who you're married to or who your friends are or how you got to do the thing you're doing uh, a few hours from now, chances are there's some serendipity that played a huge role. And what I'm urging is that in a democracy, serendipity is um, a frequent and great force for. Um, what is it? Uh, broadening and also uh, togetherness in a non cornball, non hallmark card way. So that's serendipity. Now let's talk about irritation. It may be that if you are reading, let's say, a good daily newspaper, you'll encounter uh, an editorial or a column that thinks exactly the opposite of what you think. So you might be inclined to think, you know, I'd like a, I'd like a $15 minimum wage. I think Senator Sanders is on the right track in calling for that. But then you might read something that says a $15 minimum wage is actually going to be terrible for the economy, and it's going to be very harmful for people at the bottom of the economic ladder because employers aren't going to hire as many people if they have to hire people who for $15 an hour. They'll hire them at 10 but not at 15 and so the minimum wage actually hurts the poor. That, if you like the minimum wage, reading that is very irritating. It's not congenial. But you might think, oh, maybe that's true. Or if you think that, you know, President Trump is on the right track on issue A, B, or C, and then you read something that suggests he's all wrong, it might be very irritating, but, uh, but it might, uh, might, might move you. Uh, so irritation can be good. Also, meaning it's productive of learning and kind of understanding what our fellow citizens think. And you might also learn something that will uh, produce a shared experience. So the Super Bowl, uh, the response to something great, like uh, uh, a celebration of something very good that's happened in a community, or July 4th, I would actually single out July 4th because of what brings Americans together. It's a shared experience. And that can create some social glue for people who might otherwise think of one another as, you know, occupants of the same country, but kind of enemies. To be clear, it's not just the information bubble we're talking about. We're talking about a lack of face-to-face of -face interaction in many cases. So there's the whole phenomenon of telecommuting. In fact, you and I are telecommuting right now to do this interview. And so this interview is made possible by this great technology. but this technology is enabling, in this case, me to do the vast majority of my interviews remotely in this way. And that enables me to, to make it very easy for someone like you to come on the show. But it also 
comes at, at a kind of cost. And I remember I, I recently met a, a CEO of a very big company. I mean, it's a, now you know, a multi-billion dollar company with thousands of employees. And something like 99% of them work from home or work from a, a Starbucks. I mean, there's like you know, 15 people in an office in San Francisco and everyone else is elsewhere. So it's, there's more to it than just the media streams we will emphasize here. I think you're making a great point that it's, it's not emphasized enough in my book. Uh, and I learned it actually very concretely in the government, where sometimes if you're trying to solve a problem and you know, you're in one building and people are half an hour away, you send them an email, and the email doesn't have the right tone or will not be read as having the right tone. And in any case, problem solving is harder if you're using text sometimes than if you're actually looking at someone's face. And a phone or you know something that involves voices of any technology, it, it can be better than email, as you're saying, but it, because it's more personal. But I, I found in, in government and, and after, if you really want to solve a problem, often the best thing is to get a group of people in the room. And we decreasingly rely on that. And one reason it's good is that you can understand different perspectives better if you see people's faces and they'll understand yours. And another thing, it's, so it softens some of the uh, interactions. And another thing is that, and I don't know of data on this, but uh, I, I bet there either is some or there will be some, that creativity grows because the sparks fly. And we've all seen that where, uh, you know, in, in an office or in a family even, if people are all talking to each other face to face, something new will come out that couldn't have been produced yeah, by email, yeah. even by phone. Yeah, and all the, the communication at that point isn't merely transactional in the way that it is when you're, you're sending an email. I think this is just now a ubiquitous experience that everyone will be very familiar with, where you're having some communication that's growing increasingly fraught by email. And if you're wise, you will realize that the medium is very likely contributing to the problem. I mean, the tones are getting misread and everything is sounding sharper than you intend, or, or in fact, you just become a slightly different person behind the keyboard. I mean, the, the, the maniac comes out a little bit and your response to another person isn't being modulated by a face-to-face encounter or even by a being able to hear the, the humanity in their tone of voice on the phone. I'm sure other people have had this, this experience, but I, I've had exchanges with people by email that just either you know, aren't working or they're just kind of strangely unpleasant. And then you get on the phone with the person or you, you see them face-to-face and there's this sort of shock of recognition that, oh, okay, this is that person, right? I mean, this person has a, has a different shape in your experience than the shape they had acquired in the back and forth by email. And it, it, it does kind of break a spell, which was defining the communication and, and defining it almost invariably in a, an unproductive way. Completely. No, I think that's a, a deep point. And um, it has implications for a zillion different things, including political polarization. So I had a friend in the government with whom I was frequently at odds on what to do. And 
she just developed a habit of saying, call me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I write her an email and she said, call me. And we became great friends. And in DC, you know, I was working for a Democratic president, um, and the Republicans were often not happy with what President Obama was doing. Uh, but I learned so much from uh, Republicans in the House and the Senate from face-to-face conversations where not seeing some email, they didn't write a lot of emails, but they would write a lot of letters, which would be harsh or accusatory or something. But they'd actually have often very good ideas. And when it's in person, then you're not you know, fighting or are you bad? You're thinking, what's the best way to solve a problem? And that what you're saying about you know human interactions either in business or in families or whatever uh it's it's basically a national thing so what i was thinking as you were talking is the the harsher or misread stuff that we all experience in a way our political process is is facing that and that's a challenge for let's say infrastructure yeah, it's it, just have a random problem. Right. But to be clear, you're not exactly nostalgic for some former time where you think communication was better across the board. I mean, you you actually believe, I think you say this in the book, that things are, are just simply better now than they were in the past. It's a matter of, of fixing problems now, but there is no I mean there's no place you would point the wayback machine if you could. Completely. So if you ask me when was communications in America the best it's ever been, I would say today. And if it's next week, probably next week's going to be a little better than today. Just because, you know, if you can talk to each other across, uh, you know, very long distances, that's a huge improvement. And if you can learn stuff just at a click about something you care about that may really affect your life, that can be, you know, incalculably great. Um, but one way to think of it is the, the cell phone is a fantastic advance, but if you're using it while you're driving, the chance of your being an accident is higher than it would be if you were using it when you were driving. And uh, the technology is great, but to optimize, let's say, the, you know, the, the benefits of its existence would be a good idea. And we're not nearly there yet with respect to social media. Well, I want to talk about social media and how Twitter and Facebook have been behaving themselves. But before we, we get there, I think we should talk about the phenomenon of, of hyperpolarization in groups. And this is a, this a general phenomenon that you describe in the book where like-minded people become more extreme once they begin associating with one another. And this is it may sound paradoxical on its face, but it, it, it really functions by dynamics that are, are fairly easy to understand. Perhaps you should explain, the, the, maybe the Colorado study is the place to start here, but talk about what happens in groups among the like-minded. Okay, so what we did in Colorado uh, was to get a bunch of people in Boulder, which is a left of center, together to talk about climate change, affirmative action, and same-sex unions. We asked them for their views privately and anonymously. Then we had them discuss the issues together and come to a verdict. And then we asked them to record their views privately and anonymously. And uh, uh, there was reason to expect uh, that 
if you got a group of people together, they'd end up coming to the middle of what the group members privately thought, and that would be their verdict, and then they'd all be in the middle. But that's not what happened. Uh, they were kind of to the left on all three issues. They went way to the left on all three issues as a result of talking to each other. So the left of center people in Boulder uh, had some diversity on climate change and affirmative action before they talked to each other. After they talked to each other, they were more extreme, they were more confident, and they were pretty well unified on all of those issues. This isn't just a left of center phenomenon. We did the same thing in Colorado Springs, which is right of center. And as the people in Boulder went whoosh to the left, the people in Colorado Springs went whoosh to the right. And it's just because they were talking with like-minded others. So the basic rule is that usually people who are inclined in a certain direction end up, after talking to each other, thinking a more extreme version of what they thought before they started to talk. And we can explain, I think, why sometimes in primaries, both of our political parties go left and go right has something to do with this. Why within cults, people end up sometimes getting all extreme. Uh, that's often the phenomenon of group polarization, as it's called. Why uh, terrorists often get radicalized. And also why people who you know do great things like attack um, uh, extreme injustice, why they get radicalized, because they're all talking to each other. And you say that the, the, the mechanisms are pretty intuitive. I think you're completely right. That the leading one is if you have a group of people who think, let's say, that the minimum wage should be raised. That's what they tend to think. Some of them aren't sure. They're talking with each other. They'll hear a lot of arguments about why the minimum wage should be raised, because that's what most of them think. And they won't hear a lot of the arguments the other way. And the arguments that they hear will be kind of tentative as well as few. And then if they're listening to each other after they've heard all the arguments, they'll think, oh, minimum wage really should be raised a lot. And it's just because of the arguments they're hearing. And if you have a group of people who tend to think that the minimum wage should not be raised, exactly the mirror image of what I've described will happen. And uh, I'm smiling as I talk because we actually taped our conversations in Colorado. And so I've seen them. And in real time, you can completely uh, see the process where the right people on the right are going more right because they're talking to people who think conservative thoughts, and the conservative thoughts are going to look numerous and excellent, and the disagreement will seem rare and, and kind of stupid. There's also this phenomenon of reputation management within the group, where you, you have your, your concern for how you're appearing in this group that's now getting constellated around a, a consensus, and that will tend to filter out any expressions of doubt about this forming consensus, and, and it it's functions as a kind of attractor state for convergence. You're completely right. So in Boulder, our left-of-center groups, uh, you can see them talking about climate change, whether the U.S. should sign an international agreement. And some of the people who are left-of-center were a little nervous about that. They thought, you know, I don't know what would happen to American sovereignty if we yielded to an international agreement. Um, they just weren't sure. But you could see them looking at their fellow citizens of Boulder and thinking, oh man, if I say that, I'm going to look really bad in their eyes. So I'm just going to agree with them. This strikes me as yet another argument against identity politics. Do you see a connection there? 
I think exactly right that uh, identity politics, where let's say you think, you know, as a African American woman, I tend to think this, or I should think this, or as a white male, you know, I'm in favor of this and not that, uh, or as a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim, I tend to think this. That's uh, individually deadening because it prevents you from using your own critical faculties. And it also contributes to, uh, let's say, uh, movements that are going to have a hard time communicating with one another because they have uh, polarized themselves to extremes. And, and one point that you, you flagged in passing that I just want to make explicit suggests that, that all extremism isn't bad because there are extreme forms of intellectual insight or moral energy purposed in the right direction. So I think you, you just cited the fact that someone could be fighting an injustice and getting more and more radicalized in their energy around engaging that, that project, perhaps at even great personal expense. There are cases where we want extremism when it's pointed in the right direction. Right. Barry Goldwater said something like that, and he was right. At the uh, very conservative uh, kind of Reagan predecessor uh, uh, said something very pro-extremism, and whether or not he was right on his particular political views, he was right in signaling that the attack on slavery was extremist at its, in its time, and it was quite right. The American Revolution, breaking away from Britain, that was pretty extreme, and it was quite right. The attack on apartheid in the South Africa was pretty extreme, uh, and uh, while things aren't going so great in South Africa right now, it's not very good to have a majority of the population treated as a lower caste. Okay, so, so we have a picture of people living in ghettos of a sort, I mean, really intellectual ghettos, moral ghettos, political ghettos, and they're, they're walled in by confirmation bias and reputation management within a group, and they're generally happy to stay there, and, and, they, and they will defend the ghetto from anyone who tries to break down its walls. And you have, we have phenomenon like the backfire effect, where what you, you present people with a cogent argument or you know, the most well-validated facts that you can get in hand against their cherished view, and they merely double down in the face of these intrusions. They become actually more confirmed in their beliefs. What does this say about the so-called wisdom of the crowd, and how do you see a path forward to combating this kind of, of fragmentation? Okay, so the idea of wisdom of crowds comes from a French theorist named Condorcet, who did a little arithmetic and said, if you have a group of people um, and the average member is more likely to be right than wrong, then the likelihood that the majority will be right grows to 100% as the group gets bigger. And he proved it by math. So that's the source of the idea that uh, if you have a group and each person is more likely to be right than wrong, then the likelihood the majority gets it right grows to 100% as it gets bigger. And that helps explain why that old uh, TV show had um, 
factual questions and you could ask what most people think. And what most people think was usually a better strategy than asking for your lifeline. Because what most people think, they, they tended to get it right. Also, we should just add there that one thing that explains this is that people, people will be making errors, but their errors will be falling on all sides of the target. So it's like, it's like asking a thousand people to try to hit a target with an arrow. And you have a, so you have a thousand arrows flying at this target. And they, they'll be airing on all sides of the target, but they'll be grouped you know, very close to the bullseye, provided they can shoot arrows at all. And that's why if you ask a thousand people to you know, estimate the weight of a cow, say, you know, you'll get something very close to the, to the weight of a cow. Completely. So I think these are two related but different mechanisms. One is the Condorcet and the other, Scott Page, has done the kind of uh, arithmetic of, which is around the lines you're describing. And they're both help explain why uh, crowd wisdom will exist. But both of them have... Uh, uh, a potentially erroneous assumption, which is if the error isn't random, so if you have a bunch of people who tend to think, let's say the average cow weighs 7,000 pounds or 150 pounds, then the error is going to be systematically biased toward uh, cow weight error. Or if you have a group of people and the average members likely to more likely to be wrong than right, then it'll get all screwed up. And there's actual demonstrations that the wisdom of crowds is not going to work when people are influencing each other rather than making independent judgments. So if you have someone who says, uh, you know, I know that if you increase the minimum wage to $25 an hour, only good things are going to happen. And that person's credible, let's say, within the group then the group is going to get all screwed up and it'll be worse than if you ask them independently because they wouldn't be influenced by that uh, person who I think is making a mistake and let's just suppose he is. So the wisdom of crowds is a great idea. It has uh, two mechanisms behind it. We've just discussed both of them. But if you have people who are sorting themselves into different groups of like-minded types, they can be big groups and they're not both going to be right. So you're going to have two crowds where one is in Boulder and one's in Colorado Springs, and they can both be, you know, very confident and overwhelmingly think something, but it's not working out so well. So we're, we're discussing kind of the current challenges for, uh, let's say, the American Republic that are posed by uh, uh, the Daily Me and the capacity to self-sort. And now you're asking what can be done about it. Well, there's some good news that wouldn't require anything other than just keep it up, which is that a lot of Americans, the data show, are really just curious and they want to find out what's true. So a lot of Americans on issues, you know, like uh, uh, how dangerous is North Korea or um, minimum wage even, which is a little bit politically fraught, but a lot of people are just, you know, what, what, what would happen if we increased it or decreased it? Or how should we handle air pollution problems? I'm putting climate change to one side because that's more fraught. How should we handle the problem? 40,000 Americans died in the, on the highways in, in 2016. What do we do about that? A lot of Americans are just curious and they want to figure out what's a good solution. And for them, the kinds of uh, daily me problems uh, are modest or not real. And a lot of people are using the kind of a massive number of information sources now 
just to find out a lot of stuff. And they're not turning into the, let's say, the group polarization machines we're describing. So that's one bit of good news. Another bit of good news is that if people don't have a strong conviction to begin with, you know, they might on climate change have a really strong conviction, or they might have something that's on the headlines have a strong conviction. But if it's an issue involving, you know, should we have a big infrastructure spending program in the United States? A lot of people don't particularly have a big conviction about that. And there, if they believe something that's not true and it's corrected, the correction does stick. So the backfiring correction phenomenon you describe, it's real and it's important, but it depends on people having a strong, I think, emotional commitment. Uh, um, And most issues, Americans don't have that strong an emotional commitment. They might think, I think the Republicans are usually right, the Democrats are usually right, or they're both usually wrong. But it's not like I'm really invested in my beliefs. So that's more good news. In terms of the challenges we're facing, uh, I think the solution goes back to choice architecture. And uh, people are working, I think, very productively on this, actually relatively recently. So there's an app you can get called Read Across the Aisle, and I have it on my phone. And you can get uh, sources with different perspectives. And if you are reading, you know, a lot of blue sources or a lot of red sources, it's going to tell you. And it both supplies an architecture with lots of stuff in it. And it also has a little kind of nudge if you start uh, entering a polarization machine. You know, did you know you're reading only blue things? So that's cool. There are also newspapers now, um, national newspapers that are working pretty hard, I think, in view of the problems the country's been experiencing, to try to provide diverse perspectives on problems. They have features that say, read what different people are saying on issues. And that's, uh, uh, that's helpful. Um, Facebook itself has been working on its news feed and other features of the platform uh, to try to counteract what in 2016 Facebook seemed to celebrate which was something like the Daily Me. It's not doing anything particularly aggressive, and it's certainly not playing favorites, But meaning it's not saying we like the Democrats or we like the Republicans, but it's trying to provide people with some uh, broader perspective, let's say, than an algorithm that was just focused on tracking their recent choices would provide. And that, that can be helpful. Also for each of us, and I know this has uh, influenced me, you know, since, since I started working on the book, we can be very self-conscious if our information diet, so to speak, is narrowing us or is just making us smile all the time. If that's happening, uh, chances are we're not learning as much as we should. I had the thought recently, I think I was talking to Tristan Harris on the podcast, we are talking about social media and its effects, and I had the thought that Twitter and and Facebook and these other platforms should have, in addition to a favoriting button or a liking button, there should be a a this changed my mind button, just so you can kind of register the effect of something that got forwarded. And it struck me as interesting to systematize that norm that you know that that we should be acknowledging that things can change your your view and this should be something that we we celebrate that's a good thing to have your view changed i think that's great that's a great idea and it would kind of uh create a norm of 
of openness to the possibility that what you think today you might not think yeah and you, and you would notice that you were if you were not having that experience I mean, if you went for a month without reading something that changed your view of anything that that's a curious state to be in if, if for eight months you never clicked this changed my mind you might think uh maybe that's not ideal so i've always been struck that, that the clustering of opinions is also strange here so like if you tell me what a person's view is of climate change I think I can probably guess his view on immigration or gun control or affirmative action or, or any of these other hot-button political topics. And I suppose in some cases there may be an underlying connection here. I guess you know an opposition to government regulation may capture a few of those, although it, it seems to run in the opposite direction with respect to immigration. So if, if, you, if you don't believe in, in climate change or gun control because you're generally against the government getting a hand in your business. Well, the government imposing limits on immigration is something that you would think you wouldn't want, but it kind of runs the other way. But there are other variables here that are also fairly predictive. I feel like I could probably guess people's views here if you just told me how likely they thought it was that Jesus Christ will be coming back to earth to raise the dead. So what do you make of how beliefs are, are, are reliably segregating in this way? That's that's uh, extremely interesting, and I have um, some speculations that I don't have a lot of confidence in. One is that uh, people are taking partisan cues. So if you think, I'm a Democrat, uh, what do Democrats think? And Democrats tend to think climate change is a big problem, gun control is a good idea, uh, raising the minimum wage is, is, is also a good idea. Um, fencing, uh, building a fence between Mexico and the United States, it's a bad idea. And even if these ideas have no logical connection, uh, the, the Q, which is what, what's my party, is the determinant. So that's one possibility. The other possibility, which I think is a little more interesting, is that wouldn't be necessarily about political party, it would be about cultural identification. So one thing I, I learned again in my DC experience is that some people uh, just think of themselves as a certain cultural type, which means given who I am, I think affirmative action is a very good idea. I think that uh, increasing spending on the poor is a good idea. I think that aggressive environmental regulation is important. And others think, you know, given who I am, gun control is is uh, intrudes on liberty. Illegal immigration is a terrible problem, and that's a little more refined, I think, than the party thing. Though I don't know enough to know if that's uh, more of a driver. So, well, given what we've been talking about here, what does the prospect of direct democracy look like? In the, in the aftermath of the 2016 election, I heard people bemoan the, the influence of the Electoral College and cast their hopes on some near future where technology was reliable enough here to, to aggregate opinion and in some presumably some way that's unhackable by ourselves or any other power, and that we could have a democracy that is just directly responsive to what 
every single citizen thinks rather than a republic of the sort we are currently suffering under. To read your book is to, I think, come to the conclusion that direct democracy would be the end of us. Well, let me say this. I think that uh, communism and Nazism are a lot worse than direct democracy, Mm -hmm. but uh, direct democracy is is a lot worse than a lot of other things. So the problem with direct democracy is that, um, I think as James Madison saw, we want to have a process that is both democratic in the sense that we the people are in charge, but also makes space for deliberation and reflection and uh, a kind of mixed system where the voters vote for the representatives, but there are filters so that the representatives aren't thinking every day, what do most of the people I represent want me to do, but are instead thinking, you know, I was elected to do a job, how do I do that best? That mixed system, as I'm calling it, is is better. So if you had a direct democracy to elect officials, that would be preferable to a direct democracy that resolves every individual issue. So if you had a direct democracy deciding today, you know, what should we do about infrastructure spending and what should our budget look like with respect to uh, the opioid epidemic or what should the Environmental Protection Agency do about particulate matter or how should the Department of Transportation handle the uh, increase in motorcycle, I'm sorry, uh, motor vehicle deaths in 2016, that would be really extremely bad because that's people are busy and they think about their children and their jobs and and what their lives are involved in and we delegate to public officials uh who are subject to us um some power to make particular choices given how they're supposed to spend their days and that was james madison's view so this is a very long-winded way of saying uh direct democracy isn't a cure for what ails us the point gets sharpened up in the examples you you gave of deciding specific matters of policy, and you, you could extend that to something like whether we should have a nuclear first strike on North Korea, given some provocation. Imagine just subjecting that to an online poll and having that be vulnerable to, to whatever conspiracy theories or, or fake news is getting spread in the meantime. Those are topics I also want to touch. This is maybe falls under the rubric of, of free speech and its limits, which is something you you talk about in the book. There are many of us walking around with the belief that we are free speech absolutists, but you make it pretty clear in the book that probably nobody is, or at least no sane person is. What are the limits on on free speech as you see it? And and then then we'll talk about some of the deranged speech that's harming us. I'll give you a few examples and then we can talk about, you know, what the principles might be. So if someone says, um, your money or your life, that's uh, not protected by the First Amendment. If a few companies get together and say, let's fix prices, that would be a conspiracy. If someone perjures himself under oath, that's speech. It's not protected by the First Amendment. If someone says, you know, buy this uh, product and you're never going to get cancer. And let's say that's false. That's not protected by the First Amendment. Um, there are other things like uh, fraudulent real estate deals and uh, certain forms of threats that are not protected by the 
free speech principle, to kind of come up with an organizing idea that would explain what's in and what's out is uh, unfortunately not the easiest. But we can say, I think, that any speech that's uh, expressing a political point of view uh, is going to be protected unless it's done in such a way that is going to create an imminent risk of uh, a very high imminent risk of violence. So if someone says, you know, the current president is the worst ever or the best ever, or someone says that Secretary Clinton is uh, a criminal and horrible, or someone says that Secretary Clinton is the best ever, all those sorts of things, completely fine. If we're at a building where there's a crowd that's about to uh, start engaging in arson and someone says, uh, burn that place down now, even if the person has a political motive or a political goal, that's not acceptable. The Supreme Court has something called the clear and present danger test, which applies there. So I think basically very wide range for political views, things that are cultural and literary also extremely wide range. But if you have something that is uh, intrinsically harmful, let's say like price fixing or perjury, or which imminently leads to harm, like your money or your life, then uh, then we're outside of the domain of free speech. Didn't someone just get prosecuted for offering a reward for anyone who would pluck a hair from Hillary Clinton's head on her book tour? I think that is that is true. And uh, whatever you think of that particular statement, uh, it seems like offering money for for engaging in assault. And criminal solicitation has long been thought not to be protected by the First Amendment. And that sounds, you know, if you say, I'll give you money if you beat up my least favorite person, um, that doesn't seem like it's in the core of what the free speech principle is for. Yeah. Well, well there are other cases that are um, you know, harder to, to judge here, and, and they, there's no doubt they create immense harm, but it's hard to find the, the bright line that would suggest where you should limit the speech, or at least I find it hard. I'm, I'm obviously not a, a lawyer, much less a constitutional scholar. But I mean, one that comes to mind, or it actually comes to mind on the, this other topic of conspiracy theory that I would like to hear your thoughts on. But I'm thinking about what Alex Jones did around the, the Sandy Hook massacre. Alex Jones, for those who don't know, if that's anyone, just has this immense platform online at InfoWars. And I don't know what to call him. Um, I guess a performance artist it was pretty close to, to what he is. But he claims to be thinking thoughts that he believes, and he indulges in every conceivable kind of conspiracy thinking. And, and the, the conspiracy he was thinking out loud about here was that the Sandy Hook massacre was a hoax organized by President Obama to justify the confiscation of firearms throughout the U.S. And so, you know, all those dead children really weren't dead, uh, and their parents were faking their bereavement. And he talked about this to enough people that the parents of these children who had been massacred were getting death threats and getting you know, trolled online. And, you know, for the longest time, Alex Jones must have known this was the effect of his free exercise of his speech. The power of and, and dynamics of conspiracy thinking aside, what do you think of that as just a, a 
a, a legal use of, of speech by somebody who has a huge platform? I think that we should be very cautious before allowing regulation of stuff like that. So um, if there's statements that are, let's say, sincere uh, about some horrendous thing the government is doing, to allow the government to regulate that risks overshooting the mark in a way that insulates the government from things it shouldn't be insulated from. It gets maybe a little harder if the statements are false and known to be false. But even there, the idea that the legal system can make nice distinctions between sincere and insincere conspiracy theories, that's really tough. So I'd want to give a lot of breathing space for that. The kind of testing case for the free speech side, which I'm taking now, involves libel. And if you knowingly uh, lie about someone, you know, you say that person is a murderer and you know it's false, then you can be sued by that person for libel. And that's the Supreme Court, which is very protective of speech, free speech. The Supreme Court said if you lie on purpose, you know it's false then the libel law can be invoked by the person. And then I guess the hard question for me would be, suppose you lie about Sandy Hook or you lie about anything. Uh, it's not libel, but it's causing comparable harm to libel. Um, there we, there's, at least there's a discussion to be had. But since there's a tradition of saying people get to protect their reputations against knowing lies, that kind of reasonable to say we can continue that tradition to invent a new protection, let's say, of the government, uh, protecting the government itself against um, falsehoods about it. That's a little um, uh, risky for freedom of expression. Now, your case is a bit different from that because it's the parents, I guess. It's not the government. But I, 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 I tend to be inclined toward uh, a view that uh, it's not clearly right, but the view is that the price we pay for free speech is sometimes steep, and it's still worth paying. Yeah. Now, what about something like doxing someone? So I, I know people who have significant security concerns who have been doxed. For people who are not familiar with that word, doxing is to, is to reveal where somebody lives and other details about them online uh, for, you know, maliciously. There are people, you know, you know, Muslim reformers and ex-Muslims, say, of Muslim apostates, who have been doxxed or have their families doxxed by people who know how heightened their security concerns are, and this is done for the purpose of making their security concerns worse. Now, it's not the same thing as explicitly suborning their murder, and the people who do this sometimes do it under the cover of, of being journalists. Like, this is, just, this is just factual information. I'm just putting it out here that so-and-so lives here. Here's a Google Earth shot of their house. But it strikes me as it is a conscious effort to increase the likelihood that these people will come to harm. How do you view that? It's a great one. I'll, I'll tell you my association. The Supreme Court said that uh, newspapers have a right to publish the names of rape victims in cases in which the state is trying to keep those secret. And I think the Supreme Court was completely wrong on that, that if the state is trying to protect the privacy of someone who's been raped, uh, the system of free expression doesn't mandate 
that a newspaper can say, this person of this name was raped yesterday. I think that was a terrible decision. And this, this has a little bit of a feel of that, where it's a particular person who's being targeted, not in the sense of being disclosed that something bad had happened to them, but it being, as you say, more subject to a risk of a bad thing. So it's a little bit of an intersection, and forgive me for thinking in legal categories, but a little bit of the intersection of the clear and present danger test and of privacy protection. So the Supreme Court has left open the possibility that if you tell private facts about a person, um, that they might be able to recover damages. You're not allowed to do that. And it's also had the clear and present danger test. So I, I think if the purpose and likely effect of the disclosure of where someone live is to cause harm to be done to that person, then uh, it's not uh, it's not definite that the First Amendment principle should kick in to protect the speech. So what I'm wondering, going back to you know our founding commitment to free speech, is there a good connection between the idea we the people get to govern ourselves? And the notion that you can tell where some person is vulnerable to criminal uh, violence, tell where that person lives. Not clear that James Madison would roll over in his grave if we said you can't disclose where someone lives if the purpose and effect of that is to increase the risk of violence. Yeah, yeah. well, now that I have your, your legal mind humming, I want to uh, briefly touch on your forthcoming book. I don't believe it's out yet. You, you've written this short book that, once again, you seem to be ahead of the curve here in terms of timely need for various messages, but you, you've written this book, Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide. Let's just talk about impeachment, because obviously this is of interest to everyone on, on both sides of the aisle now. What is the process of impeachment, and what do most people not understand about it? It seems to me that even some members of Congress are confused about what impeachment entails. What is impeachment? Okay, so let's talk about the standard first and then the process. So the standard is treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. Pretty short. Um, what is missed, I think, and I've spent a lot of the last few months in uh, the 1770s and 1780s immersed in these old materials, uh, the mistake, number one, is to say that the House of Representatives, which is the body that gets to impeach, can just define that however it wants. Uh, and Gerald Ford, uh, one time president, actually said this is a high crime mystery, or whatever the House of Representatives says that it is. Wrong. No, Mr. President. Uh, there was an effort to limit the category to egregious abuses of power and not to license the House of Representatives to get rid of a president because it doesn't like them. The separation of powers, this is clear from the constitutional period would be devastated if the House of Representatives could get rid of a president because it thought the guy was bad. The purpose is you need an egregious abuse of presidential power. So that's a mistake one, to say the House gets to decide. Mistake two, which Nancy Pelosi, sad to say, made not long ago, is to say the question is whether the president has committed a crime. Not so. Uh, the president may have committed a crime and not be impeachable. So if the president jaywalks or uh, shoplifts or doesn't pay his income taxes. Those are all crimes, but those aren't impeachable offenses. Those aren't high crimes and misdemeanors in the sense that the uh, founding generation understood them. 
high crimes and misdemeanors meant abuse of presidential power. And if you jaywalk or shoplift or don't pay your taxes, uh, you're doing what anyone, sad to say, might do and not what, you're, not what you're able to do by virtue of the fact that you have presidential powers. So some crimes are not impeachable at all, even though they're real crimes and they're quite serious. At the same time, maybe you haven't committed a crime. Maybe you've said, I'm going on vacation in uh, Paris for the next uh, six months, because I love Paris. You are impeachable for doing that because you're not doing what the president needs to do, which is to be president. And if you're on vacation in Paris for six months, you're abdicating your responsibilities. If you say as president, you know, I'm going to pardon every police officer who shot an African-American because black lives don't matter, uh, that's impeachable. And Madison was very, James Madison was very clear on that, that abuse of the pardon power is impeachable. If you use the power of the presidency so as to abridge people's civil rights and civil liberties in some terrible way by locking people up or not giving people fair trials or saying that, you know, because you're a certain type, you know, you're a gun owner, therefore we're going to go after you, or you're a Muslim and therefore we're going to go after you, or you're uh, an extremist and therefore we're going to go after you. That's impeachable. And in the founding generation, the people in Massachusetts were especially clear about that which is beautiful because the American Revolution started in Massachusetts. And abridging civil rights and civil liberties, abusing the pardon power, going on vacation in Paris, none of those are crimes. So, so a mistake is to say you need to commit a crime, and a mistake is to say if you committed a crime, you're impeachable. The core of it is you need an abuse of the powers you have by virtue of the fact that you're president. So the, the process is actually pretty simple, which is the House of Representatives has to decide by a majority of the vote that the president should be impeached. If that happens, then a trial is held in the Senate, which has to convict by a two-thirds vote on the grounds on which the House impeached the president. So can a president be impeached for character or temperament that is sufficiently bad as to prompt an impeachment level concern in the House of Representatives? Uh, no. So some people thought that Lincoln was depressive and that was a big character flaw. And many people thought that President Clinton had terrible character. And many people thought President Nixon had an awful character. Uh, many people thought President Obama's character was not uh, what we want in a president. I should note I'm a big admirer of President Obama, but many people weren't. And bad character, bad temperament, those are not high crimes and misdemeanors. The uh, Constitution is very clear. You need an act that is a basis for impeachment, not a disposition. Well, presumably bad character and or temperament get displayed by action. So if, if the president takes his pants off at the next press conference and starts ranting, Granted, that's not far from what he's already accomplished at other press conferences, at least to my eye. Could a display of apparent lunacy be sufficient, or does it require some more extended kind of action? It's, it's a great question, and it was discussed in the founding period and actually more recently. So I want to distinguish between the 25th Amendment, which allows you to get rid of a president for 
uh, inability to perform the tasks of the office, and the impeachment clause, which is about high crimes and misdemeanors. So if the president is uh, lost his mind, let's say, his faculties are gone in some way that isn't completely extreme, but which is reasonably viewed as obvious, then the 25th Amendment is the vehicle. But the kind of trick in the 25th Amendment is the people who get rid of the president for that are the vice president and the cabinet, unless Congress provides otherwise, and Congress hasn't. And it would take a pretty extreme case for the vice president and the cabinet to conclude that their boss has lost uh, his capacity to do his job. Possible, but it would take an extreme case. But the 25th Amendment is about capacities. The the, uh, impeachment clause is about, Hamilton, I think, put it best, uh, abuse of power. And if the president is taking his pants off in news conferences or, you know, saying very wild things, uh, we'd have to say that one of those things was a high crime or misdemeanor. And uh, the pants off, uh, that's not the uh, loveliest thing to imagine, whoever the president is, uh, but it would not be an impeachable offense. Somehow I think it would be a high crime, but uh, <laughs> we'll know it when we see it. I guess it's it's interesting here because I, I think this is a point you make in the book that we want to think about impeachment in a truly unbiased way. I mean, whether this, this, you have to think about this machinery being applied to a president you admire by people who don't admire him or her, and that should rein in your passion for applying it to a president you hate. I haven't seen you speak or write very much about Trump, and, and perhaps you don't want to get dragged into a conversation on, on his character, but I, I did read at least one op-ed you wrote where you you talk about grace, and you at one point you said, our nation has never had a president more lacking in grace. And grace, on your account, really is not some effete or dispensable thing. It really is a bulwark against violence. I think you wrote this in the, in the aftermath of Charlottesville. And it, it contains a kind of moral wisdom that avoids the most extreme forms of, of conflict. And, and as you point out, grace directly relates to a person's character, and it's the opposite of things like cruelty and moral ugliness. And so, so it's a very big deal. And I must admit, when I, when I think about impeaching Trump, it's difficult for me to untangle the fact that I think it was dangerous to elect him in the first place. And I'm getting from your, your description of, of the impeachment process now that these things should be separable. I mean, if, if you think that someone is totally unqualified to be president and you think that he's a, a monster of selfishness and really a, you know, a dangerous oaf and con man, and if you think that these attributes actually raise real risk of disaster in the world, really at every point in his presidency, it sounds like on your account here, that shouldn't be synonymous with thinking that he should be impeached. That something more would have to happen for you to actually think that. Yeah, there's a lot in what you said. The basic answer is yes. So maybe we can talk about grace first. Um, something that I confess I haven't thought a lot about, uh, but I was uh, activated by reading both the documents of the founding period and Lincoln's uh, with malice to, toward none and charity for all speech. 
where there's such a sense of humility and there's no crowing over defeating the South. There's tenderness in it. And there's a sense that if, if you win, uh, you don't gloat. You kind of do everything you can to take care of and make larger the people who were defeated. And a, a loser, uh, using a loser, you know, not as a term of opprobrium, but just people lose. A loser can show grace also in politics or in anything and uh, not blame the cheating or the system, but give credit. But I think it's especially important for winners and powerful people like like Lincoln uh, and any president to, to show grace. Uh, and we haven't got that. And I, I think we have much worse than gracelessness, um, uh, very unfortunately. And I say that because, you know, I was a Republican growing up in Massachusetts, and it, uh, it shouldn't even be necessary to say that both Americans uh, who were in the Republican Party and elected representatives who are Republican, you know, uh, God bless them, or, uh, you know, hats off to them, or whatever. And the, the current president doesn't have the what's the right word, the, the something that I'm thinking of Senator Chambliss or Senator Roberts or Senator McConnell, whom I know, and uh, in my own interactions with him, he's a person of uh, tremendous grace, even though he's in a very partisan position. And that's, that's a problem. But uh, getting to impeachment, something like gracelessness or ugliness wouldn't be a justification for impeachment. But Abuse of the pardon power by any president would be. Um, the question of obstruction of justice, which loomed large both for Nixon and for Clinton, is under you know, circumstances that involve uh, protection of the White House against a legitimate investigation. Obstruction of justice, now we're talking about the domain of the impeachable. Working with other countries in a way that is compromising our own democratic process. Now, I don't think there's any evidence that President Trump did that, but there are allegations. And so, if we're talking about, you know, principle in the Constitutional Convention itself, the idea of working with other countries to become president was called out as a basis for impeachment. So, if you have someone who's, you know, has, uh, uh, terrible flaws, let's say, and, and they don't manifest themselves in any bad acts. Um, some people would say that President Johnson had a terrible character throughout his presidency, but that it didn't result in bad acts for most of his presidency. If if that's how we are, then we're not talking about impeachable stuff. But if we have any president, Democratic or Republican, who character manifests itself in an abuse of power, then we're talking. And uh, the link to the American Revolution, I think, is a, a key to understanding what impeachment was about. Impeachment's pretty obscure, but uh, the American Revolution isn't. And impeachment was thought by the American revolutionaries themselves to be what they were f part of what they were fighting for, to ensure that we didn't have anything that replicated uh, the experience of living under a king. And to have a president as powerful as ours, that was actually super controversial in the Constitutional Convention and in the ratification debates. I don't think we would have had a constitution without the impeachment mechanism, 
which Hamilton himself and Madison in the Virginia Ratifying Convention kind of specifically called out as a way of making sure we weren't betraying the principles for which the revolution was fought. And this isn't, you know, dead history that whatever the president's last name is, whether it starts with O or T, uh, to think of this stuff uh, as uh, kind of uh, alive rather than dusty is uh, to keep faith with, you know, what makes American exceptionalism real rather than just something shouted. Well, listen, Cass, it's been an education and a real pleasure to talk to you, and, and I'm sure our listeners feel the same. Is there any, anything else you want to say about uh, what people should be thinking or doing or, or where they should find you online? All I would say is two things. Uh, great thanks to you for a fantastic conversation, so I'm super grateful. And though I worked for uh, many, many months and countless, ridiculously countless hours, in trying to understand what impeachment is about. The book is uh, on sale for something very close to zero. And uh, I don't know what I think about that, <laughs> that's, but that's true. It's not quite zero, but it's close to zero. It doesn't sound like a get-rich-quick scheme, but it, hopefully it'll, it'll move the message far and wide. I think that's the hope. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website. That's samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.